You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you have your um, Bibles, you can go to John chapter Oh, John chapter 21, and if you have your version app uh, and you want to go ahead and launch that, feel free. Uh, we're going to talk about resurrection and restoration. So we're going to talk about this morning. So uh, there's a couple of questions I want to put out there, and if you are comfortable and want to respond by way of the Vimeo account, um, you can comment in the comment box, the comment thread. Some of you did that last week, and we're grateful um, it helps us pray and uh, hopefully encourages one another who reads that. Obviously, uh, it's kind of weird because when you're invited to uh, type in something during the message, that amounts to, uh, you know, talking in church. But that's all right. Uh, so, yeah, right? So, uh, yeah, feel free to comment that. So there, there are a couple of questions that I'd like for you to think about as we move through uh, the teaching this morning. One I want to ask you to think about a time God restored a failure in your life. A time where you felt like it was just done. Maybe something you did, maybe something happened to you, and it was over. Whatever it was. Think about a time that God restored a failure in your life, and he entered into that somehow, maybe in time, maybe over the course of circumstances, but he took that failure, or he met you in that failure, and he restored you. He brought something out of that that was hopeful, something out of that that was good. I want to ask you to, to sit on that for a minute as we listen to this resurrection story. All right, John chapter 21, verses 1. We're going to read a good bit, so if you'll just read along. So after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others... Of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Men, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? <laughs> no, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped, and plunged into the sea. But since they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Now listen to this, verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish laying on it with bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This was the third time. Keep that in mind. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time, he asked them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. <coughs> he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he was asked a third time, do you love me? Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. <laughs> There's a couple of things I want to note about the text. There's a lot, of, a lot has been said about this text in the past. I've even said what I'm about to share this morning with us as a church a few years ago about the same text. I thought it bears repeating. There's a lot of things we could talk about. We could talk about how Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus reveals himself to the disciples in this story as the third time. And then Jesus asks him three times, do you love me more than these? John's trying to maybe get us to see something there, but that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. What I want to talk about is something a little more, um, a little less obvious and a little simpler. I want you to look at verse 9 again. When the disciples got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there. They see a charcoal fire. Now, do you remember in John 18, verses 17 through 18, where Peter denies Jesus three times, where John tells us he is standing? John tells us in John 18, 17 through 18, that Peter is standing by a charcoal fire. And then John tells us in this story that they see a charcoal fire. John's specific. He's explicit mentioning the charcoal fire. Now, I don't think it's incidental, and I don't think it's accidental. I don't read Scripture that way. In all the Scripture, the idea of a charcoal fire appears in these two places, both in Peter's life, one time at his moment of failure and one time at his moment of restoration. Charcoal fire becomes Peter's sight of failure and his sight of restoration. And I think John wants us to catch that. I think John wants us to see in the grander scope of this text, as Peter's being restored, which is what we call this, we call this the restoration of Peter. As Peter's being restored, he's not being restored, dislocated from his failure. John, I think, wants us to see that as he looks at that charcoal fire, because I imagine Peter, he's at the charcoal fire when he denies Jesus and he smells the charcoal and he feels the flames and the heat. And then, and then there he is at another charcoal fire. And Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Which I have to believe calls Peter to mind at a time where he didn't, he wasn't faithful in his love. And I, I wonder, and I, I, we know this, we know how this is, right? Like we are sensory people. When we have an experience in a place, smell or a touch or a sight it calls back memories have you ever had that where you walk into a place and it reminds you of a memory because something happened in that place before maybe you hear a song and it calls back to mind a memory because something happened 
when you heard that song before, or maybe you smell a smell, and it calls back a memory because what you're smelling reminds you of something that happened before. Charcoal fire becomes Peter's site of failure, but it becomes his site of restoration. And here's what I want to take away. Here's what I think John may be getting at. When Jesus is the risen Lord, sites of failure can become sites of restoration. Where what failure tore down, God can build back up and even make it new again. See, here's the thing. Our failure is never final. Now, I'm not gonna give a little pep talk and how you know, you've never really accomplished anything until you failed. I'm not gonna tell you about Thomas Edison and all these little anecdotes that we talk about failure and about never giving up. I'm not talking about giving up. I'm talking about having hope. Our failure is never final. I think this story teaches us that. That our pain, that our failures bring or that failures that happen around us inflict upon us, our pain can prepare us for something purposeful when Christ is a risen Lord. See, this is where I think Christianity becomes concrete. When I believe that in Christ, God is making all things new, that means the past, the past is done. But unfortunately, the consequences of the past aren't done, and we know that to be true. We know that God forgives us. We know that we can't come to God and say, God, you remember that time I sinned? And God's saying, yeah, you know, I do. No, God said, I will remember your sins no more. But the consequences of those failures, or maybe those sins, or maybe those, those pains and those betrayals, they, they carry on. Those wounds from childhood surface themselves somewhere in our present life. But here's the thing. Our failures or the failures that others inflict on us, the pain that takes place in our lives can actually be prepared, be places where we are prepared to live in a different place of purpose. Our consequences can actually become consequential to others in redemptive and restorative ways. There's nothing in the life of a Christ follower that is irredeemable. There's nothing that you have done or could ever do or that could be done to you that the resurrected Christ can't do something with. I don't know what he can do with it. I'm not gonna sit here and say, uh, you know, God can make all things beautiful and we sing a song on he turns ashes to beauty, which obviously the scriptures say, but let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel like God takes ashes and turns into beauty. Sometimes it just takes ashes and turns into something functional, maybe. Could there be beauty? Yeah, I believe that. I just struggle to believe that, but I believe that. You know what I'm saying? But here's, what I, here's what I'm sold out on. That God can take our wounds and he can make us wounded healers. That God can take our pains and he can bring some purpose to the preparation we experienced over time, over circumstances, over lament, over anger, over prayer, over tears, over joys, and he can create purpose out of that. He can meet us at the site of our failure. This is what a resurrected king can do. Maybe not what other humans can do, but this is what a resurrected king can do. He can meet us at a site of failure and make it a site of restoration, a place of restoration. 
And I'm going to go out on a limb and think that everyone on the other side of that screen, every one of us have had some sort of experience with this. Where we know, even in the most basic form of the gospel, that being held captive to the reign of sin and death and the sin that we just deal out in our lives and we give ourselves to, that Christ has taken that upon himself and given us new life. That in and of itself is restorative. What I'm also trying to say is that things that happen in our lives, if we are willing and if we are committed to the journey of restoration, I think that's the key. Christ can take those failures and turn them into moments of restoration, maybe for ourselves and maybe for others. And here's the thing. What's true for you and I, then, is true for them, whoever they are. You think about the them in your life that you think God can't redeem. You think about the them in your life, the them in society that society tells us are irredeemable people, that are disposable people. And the thing is, is what's true for you and I is true for them. And maybe one of the reasons we don't believe it for them is because we don't always believe it for us. But the beauty of resurrection, <laughs> the beauty of the proclamation of resurrection is there ain't no grave that could keep him down. And there ain't no grave of failure that can keep us down either. Christ can meet us where our failure is never final where our pain can prepare us for something purposeful, where our consequences can become consequential to others. And I see that in Peter in verses 15 to 19 when there's this question of love, right? When Christ asks him, do you love me? And he asks him three times. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, I feel bad for Peter. I, mean, I feel bad that he has to sit there in front of his peers, in front of his buddies, in front of the people he's done life with, in front of the people that know he failed Jesus. And they, I mean, they failed Jesus in their own way too, I suppose, but especially with Peter's boldness, right? His loudness. And that Jesus doesn't just say it once. I mean, think about it. When you, when you have to be called out, you don't like to be called out more than once the same thing. I mean, I think about when we have to have hard conversations with Ian. Ian just wants to have one conversation to move on. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want me to repeat it three times. It becomes almost shaming. And I think about that, given that this is a farewell discourse, right? Uh, and that's what it is ultimately, is a farewell discourse. I think about how Jesus asked Peter three times. And my heart hurts a little for Peter because what I think Jesus is doing is I think Jesus is pushing Peter into this place of vulnerability. I think he is, he's meeting Peter in that failure, but in order to bring something restorative out of that failure, Peter has to be vulnerable. Because in vulnerability, we open ourselves up for healing. Because the fact of the matter is when I read this and I see that, the, that it looks so intrusive and so painful what Jesus is doing to Peter, it actually ends up being restorative and liberating. What I learned from this story and other stories in scripture is that ultimately vulnerability is necessary for, restora for restoration. We have to be willing to maybe even feel the pain. Like I know in trauma therapy, that when you're going through therapy, you have to expose those wounds in order to reorganize them and deal with them. And that's painful, I know. It's painful. 
I mean, and let's be honest, healing happens within relationships of love, but relationships of love require vulnerability because we all know what the great philosopher named Cher once knew, who learned it from the great philosopher group called the Everly Brothers, and that is love hurts. Love hurts, man. And we know this. What is painful and intrusive when Christ is risen Lord can be restorative if we're willing to let him enter in to that pain, into that failure. But the only way to really let him in is to open up the failure, open up the pain, open it up before him. And I recognize that that's what we often don't want to do. We don't even deal with, with relationships sometimes. Some of us, some of us are wired in such a way when something hurts, we just want to hide it and brush it under the rug and just kind of move on. We don't want to confront it. But the reality of it is vulnerability is required for restoration to take place. And that takes some courage. But you have the courage. Maybe what it takes is less courage and more trusting that when Christ is risen and he calls you a child of God, that he doesn't want that failure to be final in your life. He wants to teach you and me how he can give purpose to that pain, how he can give a future to that failure, a future that will not just be my own, but a future that may be someone else's own, a purpose that might not just be my own, but a purpose that would be someone else's own. You and I, I think, both know people in our lives who have followed Jesus for a long time, and we have learned from their faith not because they were always faithful and successful. We learned from their faith because when they, when they encountered failure, when tragedy hit or when pains hit, whether it was of their own making or the way the reign of sin and death works, it was their faithfulness standing up underneath the pain that gives us a stronger faith. Their pain becomes our purpose in that way. We learn from the witness of faithful people. I think of, man, I think of lots of people even in this church, lots of people in my life who trusted in the risen Lord even in the moments of failure, and Christ restored them in that place. Because what I have learned from them too is that restoration requires an orientation toward hope. We have to be oriented toward hope. I mean, we're all oriented toward something. We're gonna either be oriented toward escape and, 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 and running from it and not dealing with it in denial, or we can be oriented toward hope and then lay that out before the Lord. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you like a working definition of hope, okay? Uh, here's what I think is a good definition of hope. Hope is an openness and anticipation to search for meaning in what is to come based upon the promised presence of the risen Christ. Here's what I don't think it means, and I've been very clear on this, and I, will, I would... I would be grateful to have this conversation with any of you who may think differently because I want to learn from you. And at the end of the day, I would like to, to show you where I'm coming from. I do not believe everything happens for a reason. I do not believe, God, um, that, that to everything there is a purpose. That is not what I think the scripture teaches. I think Romans 8.28 is what the scripture teaches where God can give purpose to everything that happens. I do not believe God is in control to the point that everything that happens is a part of his will. I believe God is sovereign over all the world 
to the point that he can enter into what, what the reign of sin and death does. Jesus even called the devil the ruler of this age. That he can enter into what the devil does, what the reign of sin and death does, and turn that into purpose because his purposes will not be thwarted. That I do believe. So if when people talk about God being in control, that's what they mean, that's, I can get down with that. But if what they mean is that somehow God's going to just work it all out and, and, and this that happened to me is, is for a purpose, that I just, I just can't, I can't get into that. I can't, I can't see that. I don't see that playing itself out. I don't even think Jesus played that out when Jesus talked about the ruler being the ruler of this age. And think, the fact is the reign of sin and death breaks in and it creates tragedy and trauma and brokenness. I do not believe that that child passing away was part of God's plan. I do not believe that traumas in a person's childhood is a part of God's plan. I do not believe that, that beatings and all those things are just a part of God's plan. I do believe that that is a part of the devil's plan. And I do believe that God can enter into that and redeem that. I do believe God can turn something purposeful out of that. That's where I think Paul comes into Romans 8, read it, when he says the whole world is groaning right now because it's subjected to the reign of sin and death. It doesn't really have a choice and it's groaning for redemption. And then he later on and he goes, but God can turn out in all things. God can work together for good. Though for those who are called according to his purposes, for those who trust in his purposes, for those who live in his purposes. But there is nothing that God can't turn into something restorative or redemptive. And hope, biblical hope for me, is an openness and an anticipation. that there can be some meaning that God will help me discover as he is with me as the risen Christ. Or let me give it to you this way. And it's in the version, like the lengthy definitions, and I can email them if you want. But, but hope is the ability to reinterpret in light of the resurrection, including the power it holds, even when things don't turn out all right, so that we may accept reality and its burden, press on, love in a way, and where po possible, be a compassionate presence to others. Hope is the ability to reinterpret what we see in light of the risen Christ. Where we know failure doesn't have the final word, where we know death doesn't have the final word, where we know pain doesn't have the final word, where we know consequences do not have to define us, those kind of things. That is a posture of hope. And I think, I think this is where healing begins. I think when we have an orientation toward hope, we can be vulnerable to the Christ who has risen and lay out our failures, lay out our wounds, lay out our pains, lay out our doubts. And then he can meet us in those places. But I think in order to be vulnerable, we have to have an orientation of hope. So an orientation of hope can give us the courage to have vulnerability, which leads us to restoration where Christ meets us there. And I think I see that happen in the Peter. And I think that's why Jesus eventually looks at Peter in John 21 verse 19 and says, now follow me. See, because I think part of Peter's healing, his ongoing healing, is going to involve his decision to serve. And that's kind of my last point. When I have an orientation of hope, that allows me to move 
toward a posture of vulnerability where Christ can restore me and he meets me in that place, then I have to serve him. I walk forward, I trust him, I do as he says do, I do what he does, I learn to live as he lives. And along the way, healing happens. Healing and restoration, y'all, healing and restoration was never meant to be something just between you and Jesus. I mean, you see that in Peter. His, his restoration wasn't meant to be just between him and Jesus. His restoration was completely tied to his purpose within God's purposes. And that's the same for you and me. Healing happens when we allow our wounds to meet the wounds of others. Think about it. When you've lived through trauma and tragedy, and because of that trauma and tragedy you've experienced, you see someone else experience it, when you go just to be with them, not to give them a lesson on how you overcame, because your story's not their story, but when you just go to be with them, when your sympathy moves to empathy, and you are willing to be with them because you can at least imagine or appreciate that kind of pain. You don't have to give words. You don't want to be Job's friends and get answers. But you're just with them. It's in the withness, W-I-T-H-N-E-S-S, the withness that Christ begins to work. And as they find healing, you find healing. As you find healing, they find healing. Our healing is connected to each other. It's why we need, it's why we don't like to mourn alone. Part of Peter's healing involves his commission to serve, to actively participate in God's work of restoration. Because healing and restoration were never meant to be something just between him and Jesus. Healing happens as our wounds meet the wounds of others. And as they find healing, we find healing. As I find healing, they find healing. When one is reconciled to Jesus, brought back to him, one begins to serve. One begins to feed Jesus' people. One begins to find that the Spirit of God cultivates a sense of compassion. And we need you. Hear me out, brother and sister. We need you. Those of you who have experienced healing, we need you because some of us, we aren't there yet. We're not sure about this whole vulnerability thing. Are you with me? Like, we're not sure that we want to just expose ourselves to Christ right now. You know, because last time we did that, it didn't seem to end so well. We can be honest with how we view failure sometimes in light of our faith. We need you. We need you not to give us lessons and not to give us, not to give us words and not to give us uh, a teaching, but to give us courage. Because when I don't have to do it alone, I might finally see where Christ is working, where if I were alone, I wouldn't see because my eyes are not turned toward Christ. At that moment, I may not have an orientation of hope. But in the presence and the company of God's people, we can find an orientation of hope. And when we find the orientation of hope together, and we learn from other people's stories that it is possible to be vulnerable where we can find restoration and healing, we then may give ourselves permission to be vulnerable where we might find restoration and healing. And then we go and we do that for other people. Now, as I kind of wrap this up, there's one little piece that I want to, I want to point out. If you read the rest of the text in John chapter 21, verses 20 to 22, like once Peter's restored, <laughs> look at what it says he does. Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved, followed him and said, uh, well, that disciple was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw John, essentially is what it's saying, he said, Lord, what about him? So Peter's already been told by Jesus that your life is going to not end so well. You're, you're going to be led to a place where you don't want to go and something's going to be done to you that you want done. 
foreshadowing Peter's upside down crucifixion that Christian tradition tells us happens. When Peter hears that, Peter's immediate response is, what about him? And here's what I love. Like, Peter's going to do Peter, right? Like, no matter what, Peter's still going to do Peter. And that's the thing. Jesus does, you know, <laughs> Jesus takes that, right? Peter gets comparative. He gets competitive. Even in Peter's restoration, his deep struggles don't go away. It's not like in restoration, our sin goes away. It's not like our healing happens instantly. And that's the point. Peter's still going to do Peter. We're still going to do us. We're still going to be us. Peter still has something to prove. Despite all of that, he still has something to prove. I know people who have something to prove. Peter still has a competitive spirit, a comparative spirit. But as we learn from the unfolding of Peter's story, he comes to a place where he's let that go. He's been transformed day by day. See, the thing I love about that part of the story is that the beauty of following Jesus is that you still get to be you. And you being you is all God asks. What he's going to do is he's going to take you as you walk with him, as you follow him, as you do the life of faith. He's going to take you and he's going to form you into the most faithful, beloved you you can become, just like he did Peter. Peter gets this healing, he gets this restoration. He's, he's been met into this place of vulnerability. He has this place of hope. Jesus offers him a word and direction for his life. And then Peter immediately gets comparative and he gets competitive. And yet Jesus is still there. And over the course of time, Peter's heart has changed. And essentially what we learn from Peter is that there is nothing in our lives that Christ can't restore. And as we go about our way toward restoration, there are going to be things about us that hadn't changed. But as we faithfully follow Jesus, continue to have an orientation of hope, continue to allow ourselves to be vulnerable in his presence, revealing the things we try to hide so he can meet us in those places, he, day by day, minute by minute, in some way, somehow, works all things together for good, where our pain can prepare us for purpose, where our failures aren't final and offer us and others we touch a future, and where the consequences of our lives in the past live become consequential moments of redemption and restoration for others. That, to me, is the concrete power of resurrection. So I want to give you a practice. And it's a hard one, okay? Um, it's a hard one, but it's worth it. I would encourage you to take a pen and paper and take, uh, set aside some moments in the day, just maybe just one time, maybe set aside 15, 20, 30 minutes. Now, I would encourage you to write down on paper um, what you feel you can. Write down on paper the failures or the wounds or the pain are the consequences. Don't do anything with them, just write them down. Hear me out, just write them down and then let them go. Gather them up and just let them go. Say a prayer over them and give them to Jesus. Don't deal with them, just let them go. Step away, come back another day, maybe a few hours later and then bring that paper back out. Look at that paper and whichever one, failure or pain or wound surfaces, whichever one lingers then just take that and just 
turn that paper over, take that one failure wound or that pain, and just talk with Jesus about it. Lay it before him. Father, this thing that happened when I was a child, I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't know how that could happen. Where were you? Whatever it is, help me now as an adult to understand the beauty of your healing and restorative love in this place. And over the course of time, give me the hope to be able to lay this out before you so that you may use this to bring hope and healing for others. Help this not to define me, Lord. Like, just deal with that, that kind of prayer. Deal with that with him. And then go away. And then over the course of time, come back and see if another one surfaces. This is a long process of healing prayer. It's called healing prayer. That's what it's called. Where one at a time, in time, trusting in the presence of Christ, we lay these things before him. And what I believe will happen, and I've told many of you this before, um, who's, who's talked to me about these things, Christ will meet you in that story, and he will ask you to tell that story to someone else who needs it. He will ask you at some point to take your wounds and become a wounded healer and meet the wounds of others. And then you get to see, I'm for real, you get to see something miraculous happen. You get to be a part of some sort of beautiful restorative plan in the lives of people at that moment. And it's a gift. And over the course of time, it becomes easier to tell that story. It will. But we got to start somewhere. So start with a pen and paper. And remember that an orientation of hope is what makes possible vulnerability. And vulnerability is what makes possible restoration when the risen Christ is with us. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.